This is Attica Locke, and you're listening to Writer Types. This is Ace Atkins. This is Alex Segura. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Hi, this is Sophie Hanna. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. That's a compelling question. This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome, everyone, to Writer Types. My name is Eric Beatner, and joining me as a special guest co-host today is none other than Meg Gardner. Thank you for joining me, Meg. Hey, it's great to be here, Eric. Thanks for inviting me. I always love a chance to come talk to writers on uh, Writer Types. Well, and normally you and I get together and, and, and we have a nice meal uh, out at a conference or something like that. So uh, unfortunately, there will be no uh, dining today, but it, it's always lovely to spend a little bit of time with you, even virtually. Agreed. Now, your latest novel is here, The Darkest Corners of the Night, which is your third unsub novel starring Caitlin Hendricks. Now, I don't know how the, the, the backstory of how these things work, but how did this series end up being the, the unsub series and not the Caitlin Hendricks series? It just seemed like a really short, sharp idea that uh, would really stick in readers' minds. Uh, Caitlin Hendricks, the, the heroine of the series, uh, is a young investigator, started out as a cop and is now an FBI agent working in the behavioral analysis unit. So she hunts serial predators. And Unsub is, as many of your sophisticated listeners might know, the (laughs) FBI's unofficial term for an unknown subject, the unidentified bad guy. You know, it's a, a real life whodunit. They call they call that an unsub case. And that's that's what Caitlin's job is to help rip the masks off these killers and bring them into the light so that uh, they can be captured. Yeah. It's like a cute nickname. Like Meg for Margaret. <laughs> that's, that's right. There you go. Did you start out as a Margaret or were you always a Meg? I've always been a Meg. I come from a long line of Margarets and all the other nicknames were apparently taken. <laughs> well, okay. Now, The Darkest Corners of the Night is about a killer stalking Los Angeles. And as a resident of LA myself, I have to ask, why did you put this horror on us? Couldn't you have kept it a little closer to home there in Austin? My last novel was set in Austin, so I thought I'd spread the joy. <laughs> no, the all these novels sprung from some small seed of reality. And this novel uh, had its origins in the crimes of the Night Stalker, who terrorized Los Angeles in the 80s. And I was living in Southern California at the time and very strongly remember the sense of dread we all felt. No one knew where or when he was going to strike. All we knew was that when the sun went down, we seemed to be at his mercy. And you know what? No matter how carefully we tried to guard against him, Everybody has to sleep sometime. So I set the story in the same landscape. I mean, L.A. has this aura of sunshine, glamour, atmosphere, but then the line between night and day gets sketchy, and there's hundreds of miles of freeways where a killer can be there, be gone before anyone even knows it. Yeah. Well, and, and when you live through something like that, it does tend to stick with you. I, I remember talking to Alifair Burke, and she you know, experienced the BTK killer when she was young in, in Kansas, and it, it stays with you your whole life. It does. And I was, when I started thinking about that time, there was this visceral dread that kind of rolled back through me, and I remembered the, the way we all felt. So as a novelist, of course, I 
try to focus on that and use it to go deeper into the story. Yeah, visceral dread is our bread and butter. There we go. Yes, and of course, in the in real life, uh, the, the residents of East Los Angeles literally captured the Night Stalker uh, on the streets when they recognized uh, recognized him and uh, chased him down and captured him. So sometimes, uh, sometimes things uh, work out in surprising ways. Well, now, do you know more about serial killers now than you ever thought you would? <laughs> I grew up in Southern California. Uh, there are plenty of uh, plenty of unsub cases uh, that crackled through the background of of my life, starting with the Zodiac, you know, and yeah. uh, more much more recently realizing that the Golden State Killer had been prowling through my neighborhood where where I was a kid playing out in the on the streets. Wow. And, uh, I mean, that's part of what the series is about. It's about who takes on the burden of facing up against these killers and who's willing to shoulder the, the work and the emotional load of apprehending them. Well, all right. I always want to know from all of our guests, co-host or otherwise, have you read anything good lately? I just finished reading a nonfiction book, Midnight in Chernobyl, which is fascinating, moving, and appropriately terrifying. I'm always on the lookout for something new and fun, but I'll, I'll stick with the nonfiction for the moment. How about you? You know, I just finished a, a novel called Line of Sight by James Queeley, who uh, is a Los Angeles-based writer, uh, someone that I've known for a couple of years now. I had him out to, for his first ever public reading at Noir at the Bar uh, that I host. And James is uh, an LA Times reporter covering the crime beat, so he's got a lot of experience to pull from. Uh, and this is his first novel, and it was one of those books that you read and you're like, "Oh, come on, this can't be a first novel." It was it, it's so accomplished and confident that it just makes you jealous. Right, I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good. That's now on my TBR. Well, all of this goodness today is brought to you by our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing. And how cool is Blackstone? Well, they publish you, Meg. Yeah, It doesn't get any cooler than that. <laughs> they're my publishers. <laughs> hey, guys. Thank you. <laughs> well, there are some fantastic mystery and thriller titles at Blackstone. Uh, their specialty, of course, is audiobooks. So I know I listen to a bunch of them uh, during my very, very long commutes. Uh, but if you go over to blackstonepublishing.com, you can find a ton of great upcoming books, uh, the likes of uh, like Martin Waits' uh, The Old Religion or Sarah Foster's You Don't Know Me and Ash, the latest James Rayburn thriller. I, I loved his first one. Uh, and just so happens that another Blackstone author is our first guest. Dana Haynes is the author of St. Nicholas Salvage and Wrecking, about two people with very different approaches to law enforcement who team up to form a bounty hunting operation to take care of the worst people out there by any means necessary. And Meg, this one has a great blurb that says, the action is fierce, the character's compelling, the story is chillingly plausible. Dana Haynes knows how to write an irresistible high-voltage thriller. And that was by, let me see here, uh, oh, Edgar-winning author Meg Gardner. That was you. That was me. I dug that book. <laughs> High adventure, uh, fast-paced, fabulous character. So uh, I'm glad that Dana's coming on here in a minute. All right. Well, let's talk to him. Dana, in the book, Michael and Catalin are undertaking a, a bit of a second career when they go and set up the St. Nicholas Salvage and Wrecking. 
And I want to know, is novel writing for you almost a, a bit of a second career path? Because you seem very accomplished in several disciplines already. I started writing fiction while I was in college, and my goal was to be a journalist at the time. The only thing I ever studied was how to be a journalist, but I also was trying to write novels. So I, they've always, since I was about 20, paralleled each other. And I'm very, very fortunate. I've been, there's two things I wanted to do when I was 20. I wanted to be a journalist, I wanted to be a novelist. And weirdly enough, I'm doing them both. Wow, living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Meg, were you doing exactly what you wanted to do when you were 20? I am. I wanted to be a writer and didn't have the confidence at that time to think that I could figure out a way to make it work. And uh, eventually here I have clawed my way to some kind of accommodation where, uh, where I get to write novels, short stories, all kinds of stuff. And it's what I wanted to do since I was a kid. I don't know about you, Eric. Well, here's the thing. I, like w when you're 20, I, th I feel like you have a pretty good uh, eye on, on what the future might possibly hold. Here's what I want to know from you guys. What was the first thing you ever wanted to be? Because for me, I am not living my dream because when I was like 13, 14, I was going to be a Hollywood stuntman. I probably shouldn't mention the Starfleet captain thing because it sounds weird at my age, but that would probably have been my first one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm the one that actually went to a Star Trek exhibit wearing a captain's shirt, so I totally understand where Dana is coming from. And I, I presume that Eric had set up some kind of a bike ramp in the backyard, an obstacle course, so that you could oh. train for this career. 100%. How I have never broken a bone is beyond me. <laughs> well, I always wanted to be a cowgirl, astronaut, ballerina, writer. So I've at least managed to knock one of those off the list. Said the woman who went to law school. Right. <laughs> that, that just happened along the way. God help me. <laughs> well, I say it's never too late, Meg. <laughs> I got the boots. <laughs> And the ballerina astronaut thing would be great because of the lack of gravity. I mean, that would be really cool. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, back to St. Nicholas. <laughs> Salvage and wrecking. Uh, Dana, you've got uh, the two leads, Michael and Catalan. They come from very different backgrounds. They have very different working styles, shall we say. Do you believe that opposites attract, even in a non-romantic work environment? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I work in a newspaper world and almost always have, and there's a vast variety of people and it's a very collegial atmosphere. You got to work with page designers and photographers and people who have just very different skill sets than yours. And when it works well, uh, it all blends together very nicely. And when I started this book, the very first thing I really, really wanted to do was have a male and a female protagonist in a thriller who were co-equals and not love interests because I had just not read that anywhere. So that was the very, very first congealing notion in my head when I first started the book was having partners who were never going to be love interests who were simply co-equals with very opposite skill sets. Well, it's a very cool uh, duo that takes on, uh, takes, on, <laughs> takes on these cases. Looking at the way they approach their work, uh, they come from different backgrounds. Is it a benefit to have them uh, go into these kind of dangerous situations with the 
two different approaches? Yeah, very much so. I mean, Michael grew up as a as the son and grandson and brother and nephew of cops. And so he very much believes there's one way to do everything. When we first meet him, in fact, the big old stick up his butt has a big old stick up its butt. And he asks, he believes, you know, there's you do everything by the book. Catalin, on the other hand, has been both a soldier, a spy, and an assassin. And she doesn't believe there is a book. She thinks there's two categories, win and loss, and it doesn't matter what you do to be in the first category. That's where you have to be. So as the two characters start, they come from very, very different positions, and they have to figure out at some point that somewhere in the middle where they meet is where they're going to be the most efficient. And having two characters who really are evolving was awfully fun. I had just had a blast doing it. Now, I may be reading way too much into this, but these two seemed, you know, they're almost like different sides of a personality. And I can't help wonder if maybe they represent the two sides of the author in a way. I think all your characters to one degree or another represent a little bit of you. The very, very first book I ever wrote, I, um, the two protagonists were alcoholic and gay. And I remember my dad said, is there anything we need to talk about? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you always drag a little bit of, of your characters into you. And like Meg does, I really want characters that I can uh, be with for a long period of time. And I really enjoy being around, uh, just as I enjoyed Meg, being around Meg's characters when I read the book. You're around them a lot longer when you write the book. Or Dale Burnett, an anti-hero who was a lot harder to like, but you end up wanting to spend 300 pages with him. Well, that's Kind of you to mention, Dana, I, and I should tell the listeners that Dale Burnett is a character from my book, All the Way Down, uh, available now at finer booksellers. <laughs> uh, but sorry, uh, yes, continue. Yeah, you do draw on yourself for all these books, I think. Yeah, you, you definitely, uh, you, you have to you have to learn to love them because uh, they're going to be a part of your life. And in some ways, uh, we all get to that point where you're spending more time with your character than with your own family. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, I, I got to tell you, I really realized how much I loved these characters. For sure, I think at the point when, I don't want to give anything away, but there's a point when a cement truck comes onto the scene. And uh, I love them. <laughs> and I loved you for having that appear at just the right moment. <laughs> That was a fun little bit of business. That was that was a, that was kind of a blast. Okay, now Dana, you are up in the Pacific Northwest, in Portland, mm-hmm. and this story does not take place anywhere close to that. Compared to Oregon, this, the the locations are pretty far flung, as uh, in many of your books. Are the settings for this novel places you were familiar with already, or did you do a lot of research? I was very, very, very fortunate. I got to travel to places like Cyprus and the former Yugoslavia and France and to walk around where almost every scene in the book I've walked through and and uh, blocked out the scene like I used to in you know, theater days to, to know how the people enter and what they see. Uh, the former Yugoslavia was absolutely fascinating. It was a good driving tour over several weeks. Uh, got to go to Cyprus. I uh, got to tour that island, which was fascinating. So when I got to write about these places, I had done so by walking through all these places. And boy, that's a that's a luxury. That's a mitzvah. I am so fortunate to have been able to done. done After Michael and Catalin go to all these exotic places, maybe in the next book, if they end up in Portland, it's going to be exotic to them. <laughs> 
Yeah, it would be. I haven't written a scene, a book in Portland since 2010. There was a book called Crashers, and it was, an airplane crashed on Interstate 5 between Portland and the capital of Salem. But I haven't brought any characters back here since then, and I'm not opposed to doing it. Uh, I think that would be sort of fun. I would I would, uh, just haven't found the right story. Yeah, I think Catalan would not personally care for uh, the winter weather in Portland, but she would figure out how to take advantage of the slickness of the roads to to get her get an advantage of on her opponents. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Spanish and Algerian. This would depress her a little bit. I'm looking out my, of my apartment window right now, and it is slate gray outside. And it's going to be like this for months. Oh. I'm Irish American. I love it. But I recognize it. <laughs> oh, I know. I I lived in Eugene when I was little, so I loved it too. You can always climb up to the top of Mount Hood and probably be above the clouds, but. <laughs> Now, Dana, you're writing about some of the worst of the worst in humanity. Does that ever get exhausting, having to learn about how awful people can be? Yes, sometimes. But I'm talking about my day job as a journalist. I mean, we write about some pretty (laughs) horrifying people there, too. Now, it's worth pointing out that I'm a community journalist. I've spent more time covering school board meetings or county commissions than I have actual crimes. I've only ever covered one uh, murder trial. It was a four-way murder trial involving the Hells Angels. And it was as close as I ever got to uh, being alcohol impaired because it was so depressing oh, every day. Man, you'd come home from that trial and just be beaten down. Uh, and I know that uh, when coming up with the characters for uh, Caitlin Hendricks, uh, Meg's pr- current protagonist, and they're they're more horrific than my characters. But you have to be able to disassociate from the fiction and and not you know you compartmentalize. I guess is a better word and. and and, and uh, not bring it home with you because you do a bunch of research and stuff that's really disgusting and horrifying. And you have to put that in a little mental file folder, whether you're doing it a, as a journalist, whether you're doing it in fiction, and then just not take it off on your spouse. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. They appreciate that. <laughs> and as novelists, we, we can step away. We're, we're not actually in the field like the police, the prosecutors, the the, the people who are living the, living the nightmare. So it's it's a bit of a luxury for us but you know that's why I, I think when we both write we all write we try not to ever write gratuitous violence or make it seem too uh, balletic or fun because it's uh, it's really not you know maybe we have a little bit of a responsibility you know almost like a journalist and I'm probably way overstepping our role as fiction writers but <laughs> to to represent the full scale of violence and its consequences. Yeah, I think that's actually true. And for this book, St. Nicholas, I had sent out the book to get um, blurbs to get people to write about it. And I'm not going to name names, but a friend of mine and a friend of Meg's wrote me back and said, in the beginning of the book, young people, especially uh, immigrants, uh, underage immigrants are in peril. And I can't give you an endorsement. I can't do that because books in which uh, minors are in peril are anathema to me, so I can't do it. Huh. And I so respected her answer. That was great. She didn't say, I don't think you can write. I don't like the characters. I don't believe the plot. She said, I can't endorse a book in which minors are in peril, which I really respected. I thought that was a line in the sand that I could stand, stand with. Yeah. I, I, I sent her back a note and said, thank you. Appreciate yeah, I can it. totally get on board with that. Actually, you sure that wasn't my mother? That's... <laughs> <laughs> No, your mother's endorsement is really helpful. Okay, good. <laughs> all right. Now, Dana, you know, we sit, uh, I sit behind a desk all day. You uh, are tromping the, the mean streets of those school board meetings. But just suppose, 
that you and I decided to start a business like uh, Michael and Catalan. How do you think we do? Well, um, one of us uh, has uh, like legal training and uh, has also lived in foreign countries. And uh, because of that skill set, I think we would be great. I need to point out that the person who's done those things are both <laughs> you. Uh, but, you know, I always tell people I would be an awesome sidekick, man. I would be the world's just superb person to whom, you know, Doctor Who turns and says, what's that, doctor? Well, let me explain it to you. That would be my role, man. I no, 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 no. You see, even, I, I can write, I can have the people in my head, all the characters say all kinds of things to each other, but in actual life, there's, there's a reason I'm not a journalist. You, you're willing to go and confront people with the tough questions where I would probably be just hiding behind the curtains at the back of the room. So, <laughs> Well, and, and we can all agree that in any situation, I would be the one tied up in a trunk somewhere that you're trying to rescue. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming, Eric. Don't worry. <laughs> Well, Meg, I know if I was ever in jeopardy, you would actually be one of the first people I call to get me out of trouble. Would you be okay with that burden? Of course, I could refer you to a lawyer or to a, a private investigator, I'm sure. <laughs> You'd be good for references, but not actually kicking down a door and saving me, is what you're saying. I have bad knees. <laughs> well, I tell you, who's someone who we would definitely want on our side is Pike Logan, who was written by our next guest, Brad Taylor. Now, Pike is a former Special Forces uh, operative who travels around the world, getting into all kinds of horrible trouble. You know, it's safe to say, Meg, this is turning out to be a very thrilling episode. We've got some some three incredible thriller writers. This is, uh, people are gonna be on the edge of their seats. Well, I hope so. <laughs> well, Pike Logan is back in his latest adventure with Hunter Killer. And it furthers the adventures of this globe-trotting, ass-kicking former Special Forces operative, all written by the globe-trotting, ass-kicking former Special Forces operative himself, Brad Taylor. So let's talk to him. Well, Brad, Hunter Killer is your 14th Pike Logan thriller, and that's not even to mention the short stories. So my first question is this. How the hell is this guy still alive? <laughs> well, each book's different. <laughs> I did actually, I was doing two books a year for a while there. My publisher said, hey, we're going to do two books a year. And back then, uh, it was my fourth book. I was like, well, how many times can Pike save the world? I'm yeah. going to run out of <laughs> ideas here. Uh, and so I asked him if I could expand it beyond just traditional you know, counterterrorism and, and look at other things. And he said, sure. So you still managed to put him in uh, some perilous situations, let's say. <laughs> and then he always manages to, to get out. It's it's a, a quite a feat of uh, trickery that you you can paint him into a corner and then uh, and then somehow manage to have him escape. I mean, how often do you end up painting him into a corner that you then have to stop and think, oh boy, what have I done? Oh, every time, every single time. So I'll end up uh, I'll do something that uh, the corner he gets painted into is not so much. Sometimes it's a physical threat to him, but usually it's him trying to solve the problem. And uh, I create situations where it's, you know, you don't want the, the simple, oh, Pike tripped over the hotel key. Now he's solved the problem. <laughs> so you've got to develop ways. Of, uh, and also, the more you write, um, I mean, you write your first book and it's it's a wide open field. The universe is wide open. As soon as you write something, that, you know, that guy has blue eyes, he's got blue eyes forever. And so I don't want to do the same things I've done in the past. And so I'm constantly, it gets harder and harder to find some way of doing something that uh, hasn't been done in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know whether you outline or not, Brad, but I always 
write outlines and, and I'll come to a point in the outline that says something like, uh, Caitlin discovers the, the key to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then when I get to actually writing the scene, I'm like, well, how, idiot? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, do, I don't do a full-up outline. I do what I call a framework where I know the threat vector, I know the start, and I used to, I would have said I know the ending 100% of the time, but now it's about 80% of the time I'll know the ending. So I was just rereading the one I did for Hunter Killer. It says in there, Pike discovers the plot to be determined. <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to close off any avenues that might prove productive. Right. So, yeah. Okay, so Pike Logan started this series as a man with nothing to lose, but you can't run on that forever uh, in a series like this. So how did you come up with balancing, giving him relationships again after so many tragic losses, but doing that while letting him keep his edge? Yeah, that's one of the hardest things in writing a series, as you well know, is that the characters have to grow. I mean, they, they can't be stagnant. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I never thought I'd have a single bush published much less 14. So when he originally started in one rough man, yeah, his compass, moral compass was broken and everything was done. And, you know, he slowly, but surely climbed out of that cesspool and it was just, uh, uh, trying to make him grow and also Jennifer grow too. uh, Jennifer Cahill, the other partner in crime there where she was morally just black and white, this is good or it's bad. And that's the end of it. She has grown to see that the world's kind of a mess of gray. And that's the hardest thing is because it, you know, every human being grows. You have a child, your life is different. Uh, you, you know, you go to college, your life is different. Everybody has a, a growth in their life uh, and you, you have to capture that on the page so it's not just a stagnant guy, you know, doing the same thing. Absolutely. And in a series, it's it's always tricky because readers come to love the character they were introduced to so many times. Uh, you, you've got to have them grow, but they've still got to remain identifiably that person. Right. And so that's what I told, you know, I was talking to my publisher about it, you know, if I if Pike Sultan whipped out a, a lightsaber and was on Tattoon, people would say, what the hell? What is this? Am I reading? I'd read that. So, <laughs> so he's got to be rooted in, there's got to be, you're right, there's got to be a foundation he's rooted in, uh, which is basically the Pike Logan universe, but he still has to grow and it's a delicate balance. Well, the good news is if you do ever stray from the path, the readers will let you know. Oh, they let me know. <laughs> I get emails all the time. In fact, I just got one the other day. Uh, which is, I found eight mistakes in your book. <laughs> on page, page 47, paragraph two, the third line. Right. So he says, I think there's a continuity error here. And he was right, there was. about you know, nobody caught it. And there's a bazillion people that read these things. And I've read it probably a hundred times. And so I emailed him back politely and said, yeah, just insert Pike, pulled the dragon ball and went to the balcony. One sentence and solves the whole problem. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for reading all the way to the end, sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, you write thrillers, Meg writes thrillers, but they're in very different worlds, but all under the thriller umbrella. Well, you write thrillers too, Eric. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Hey, I write books. I, I Sometimes even I forget. <laughs> but the thing I always am curious about is what authors read or experience to, to almost get out of the head. And, and Brad, since you're always sort of in a little bit of that military mindset, I want to know what, what do you go to either in books or movies to, to sort of get out of that mindset so you can approach it again fresh i actually don't read my own genre i don't read anything like what i write uh i read murder mysteries i read meg gardner as a matter of fact oh, thank you so, i read uh yeah meg gardner and uh, robert craze john sanford those kind of things do you read nonfiction, brad oh yeah not as much as i, I in fact I have a stack of books on my uh, bedside table right now that I, you know one day 
I'm going to get to, but I have to do so much research for each book. I mean, I just got through reading six books on China and Taiwan and all that. Oh, wow. It's just, just getting through those just for the next novel. There's a bunch of books that I haven't read. And I'm like, one of these days, I'm going to get to it. Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, you want your head to be in the space of the next story you're writing so that it starts to feel three-dimensional. So I can totally understand getting into the nonfiction that way. Um, but speaking of travel and places, um, Hunter Killer takes place in South America, but it features Russian assassins. So yeah. um, is international crime and terrorism really borderless these days? Um, are all these factions really working together? Yeah, actually, the uh, plot of this book actually came out of my last book, Daughter of War. I had a, a tangential protagonist or antagonist there in the form of uh, Wagner, which is a private military company from Russia, and it's a real organization. Uh, and they're they're in Libya right now, fighting for Haftar, trying to take over Tripoli. They took over the Crimean Peninsula. They're propping up Bashar al-Assad in Syria, and it's it's a proxy force that Putin gets to use. And it's a real thing. And I still had tags for doing the research on him when I started this novel, and I saw a story that uh, Putin had sent a, a company of mercenaries down to Venezuela to protect Maduro, and that interested me. So I started doing the research on it, not because I was writing a book, but just because it was an interesting story, and it's something that I you know I'd done a lot of research on in the past. And I stumbled on the clown fest of elections down there in Brazil that were going on <laughs> mm-hmm. at the time. And so one thing led to another, and that's how the book began. Wow. It's, uh, there's got to be almost an endless uh, supply of these sort of shadow organizations and, and behind-the-scenes players if you really can look under the rock, right? Yeah, they're, they're all over the place. There's, there's, you know, truth is definitely stranger than fiction. And a lot of the truths threaded through this book have... One scene in the book from the car wash scandal where the lead prosecutor's plane crashes and uh, everybody on board's killed. And my publisher said, hey, uh, why don't you make it sexier instead of just a plane crash? And I said, well, I would, except that's true. <laughs> <laughs> the prosecutor's plane did, in fact, crash and nobody knows why. And it took out his whole staff. And you can find a ton of stuff, you know, just doing the research. I always ping on something. I'm like, holy moly, I didn't know that happened. I didn't know this happened. And Southcom or, or South America is not my AO, so I didn't know a whole lot about it. But you've been down to South America to do more research for this book, right? Oh yeah, every there's not a section in that book that I didn't put boots on the ground. We went all over Brazil, everywhere. What hard duty. <laughs> actually, it's people say that, but it actually is kind of hard because I don't have a whole lot of time and so I got things that I'm looking for and there's usually there's something looking for me and I don't even know what it is. Right. And so I hit the ground running and I don't spend any time doing anything. Except for this time when we went down there and so my wife said that uh, you know, as long as we're going down there, we got to go to the Amazon. And I was like, no, I'm not going to the Amazon. That's not going to factor in the book. She convinced me. So, you know, we're probably never going back to Brazil. I was like, all right, we'll go to the Amazon. So we did. And I wasn't even going to have that in the book, but they aggravated me when they wouldn't let me take the seaplane home because the candidate had taken the seaplane. I had to take this four-hour bouncing hell trip of a van ride. So I blew the plane up in the book and Amazon made it. <laughs> <laughs> but Brad, you made an important point a minute ago when you said you go down, you go to do your research, um, you're looking for something, but there are all, there's always something looking for you. And I think for anybody who wants to write, that is an important point to remember when you're doing research. A lot of people look just for the one thing they're after without stopping to observe everything else that's going on. And that's how you really come up with the surprising, authentic detail that can really make a story. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it happens in every single book. This book, for instance, we were in Manaus, which has got a Petrobras refinery there and that kind of stuff. And that's what the research was about. Uh, but as long as we're there, we, we go to the, the opera house, which is a one thing in Manaus. It's an industrial city. It's not, there's nothing really there. 
and, but they had this opera house that Robert Barron's had from bazillions of years ago. Uh, so we went in there and it was just boring as all get out. So there's just, you know, stained glass and you're looking at everything. And the guys that was with us said, uh, and there's the balcony where the, uh, the Robert Barons used to have their mistresses and they would make love while the opera's going on. And I was like, er, what? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? And he says, yeah, there's a secret tunnel that runs underneath this, uh, underneath the building here and ends up into the orchestra pit and they sneak them in through the secret tunnel. Well, right then I was like, Hey, that could, that sounds neat. Let's go see the secret tunnel. And that made the book. And I, I never would have known that if you hadn't gone down there because they're certainly not advertising. Come see the secret tunnel where these orgies went on when they're talking about the <laughs> opera house. <laughs> Very cool. Well, that's great. Well, now let's say if, uh, Pike Logan is the kind of guy who I, I would definitely want by my side if, if things got a little hairy. So let's say I get called into a company, Pike, on a mission. Now, knowing that I have no combat experience, no self-defense training, no firearms training, and I kind of have one trick knee, how long do you think I would last in the field if Pike is by my side? Would he get me through? Oh, yeah. Oh, you, you, you'd have some kind of skill. You may not know what your skill is, but you've got something. <laughs> I'd find it out in, in the crucible of uh, being under fire. Well, there's more skills than just the combat techniques, I and mean, there's all kinds of skills. That may come in handy somewhere. There you go. One more question for you, Brad. What is the most Pike Logan thing you've done in the last year? Well, I've done some security contracts, but I can't really talk about it. <laughs> Ish, then. Give us something. Give us Make something up. <laughs> well, I could say... I could, uh, Two years ago, I, um, I was doing research in Lesotho, uh, Africa, for Operator Down, and I got rolled up as a spy and interrogated for eight hours. That's probably as wow. close as I got to Pike Logan. Fun. That was looking for me, too. That all made the book. <laughs> wow. Now, were they interrogating you about plot points for the next book, just so they could get a scoop on it? Or? <laughs> uh, no, they. I was stupid. I, I was... The book is about a coup in Lesotho, and so I went in there and was not doing any touristy stuff. I had taken pictures of the police station, the, the radio station, the television station, because I figured I could, you know, Brad, plot a cue. They always seize the radio station first. Of course <laughs> they were going to think you were plotting a coup. Well, yeah. So then I, I even had a picture on my camera of the prime minister's residence where the, in the picture is a photo saying, no photos. <laughs> uh, I mean, a sign saying that. And so I went to this special forces base. I was trying to figure out where the SF guys were because they're going to do the coup. And I walked up to the front gate and tried to get in. And um, I got rolled up. I made it onto the base. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well played. In a special back room. <laughs> yeah. And I was in this concrete building getting interrogated for eight hours. They thought I was some kind of American spy. There was a lot of stuff going on that I had no idea about in Lesotho, political-wise, with the United States and everybody else. I learned all about it. Wow. Interrogation. Well, as interrogations go, uh, how did Megan and I do? Pretty well. Very easy. Okay. <laughs> Better than those guys. I couldn't understand their accent. They thought I was faking it. <laughs> Well, time now for something new here on Writer Types, the elevator pitch. This is where we give small press and indie authors a chance to tell you about their latest novel. And this time, we've got author Glenn Dyer. This is Glenn Dyer, the author of The Torch Betrayal, the first novel in the Connor Thorne series. Ever since I was a kid growing up in New Jersey, I've been fascinated with the World War II era because it touched millions of lives. As an adult, I have compiled a growing library of books devoted to World War II, both nonfiction and fiction. The story of the establishment of the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the predecessor to the Central Intelligence Agency, I found to be captivating. 
It was an agency created in the image of its founder, Colonel Wild Bill Donovan. When he enlisted agents, Donovan preferred younger men and women whom he described as being, quote, hellraisers who are calculatingly reckless of discipline, daring, and trained for aggressive action. That description fits Connor Thorne, the protagonist of the Torch Betrayal, perfectly. The plot for the book is inspired by an actual event that I discovered while reading My Three Years with Eisenhower, written by Captain Harry C. Butcher. Butcher tells of a document that went missing that included the key directives of Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa. What piqued my interest was the fact that the document was never found. The Torch Betrayal is the story of how and from whom the document was reclaimed by OSS agent Connor Thorne, all before task forces set sail from the U.S. and Great Britain. The reviews have been very positive for the book, enough so that I decided to write a follow-up to it called The Ultra Betrayal, which will be released in early March. It, too, was inspired by an actual event. In 1940, as the Germans were closing in on Paris, the British flew a Polish engineer who earlier had provided plans for the Enigma machine to safety in England. They settled he and his wife in a flat, and soon thereafter, he disappeared, never to be found. That story served as inspiration for the Ultra Betrayal. You can find a link to Amazon for the Torch Betrayal and soon the Ultra Betrayal on my website, glendyer.net. Well, I'll tell you, I enjoyed The Torch Betrayal, and I think fans of spy thrillers and World War II novels will as well. So thanks, Glenn. Well, Meg, that was quite a thrill ride with some amazing thriller authors. I'm so glad that you could join me today for this. Hey, it was my pleasure. This is fun. Absolutely. Well, hopefully I get to see you uh, in person on your upcoming book tour for your brand new book, The Darkest Corners of the Night. I hope so. It'll be great. I'm going to be all over the country. Phoenix. Los Angeles, San Diego, New York, Virginia Beach, Austin, and Houston. So I hope there's a place where a lot of people will uh, be able to come out and say hello and uh, hear me talk, get a signed book, and uh, let me know that uh, you're out there reading, please. (laughs) Yes, if if you're anywhere near any of those cities, it's worth uh, the drive to make it into CMAG. She's as you have just heard, quite charming and, uh, and erudite and, and makes me sound smarter. So I thank you for that. You've done your job admirably today. Erudite on a Saturday morning. <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's one to check off the bucket list. <laughs> well, special thanks to our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing. Visit blackstonepublishing.com for Meg's latest book, for Dana's latest book, and for many, many more. And Meg, you're out there on, uh, on the old World Wide Web, too. Where can people find you out there? at meggardener.com, M-E-G-G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R.com, or on Facebook at Meg Gardner Books, and Twitter at MegGardner1, or Instagram, also MegGardner1. Give me a shout. I'd love, uh, I'd love to hear what's on your mind. I don't have the Instagram, but I'm curious now, what are you uh, posting photos of? Are you, are you down there taking photos of all the tacos that you're eating in Austin? or <laughs> Books. I take pictures of books. It's just all books, all the time. (laughs) Well, there you go. To find out what uh, Meg is reading and maybe occasionally what she's eating, uh, go follow her on the Instagrams. 
I'm always at ericbeatner.com and you can find the show on Twitter at WriterTypes. Thanks for listening and I'll be back again with more incredible authors and another special guest host. We'll see you then and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.